Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm James Rogers, and on today's Warfare podcast, we mark the 80th anniversary of that fateful day on July 6th, 1942, when Anne and her family went into hiding by finding out about the people who hid the Franks and another family who lived alongside them. To help with this, we have Dr. Gertrude Broke, who has been the senior historical researcher at the now-preserved Anne Frank House in Amsterdam for over 15 years. He joins us to explain the fates of those involved and to reveal the real reason why Anne and her family were eventually found by the Nazis. Hi, Gertian. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Good to hear. Well, it is great to have you on the podcast, especially at this important time of the year, because this July marks 80 years since Anne Frank and her family went into hiding in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam. And of course, we can all still visit that house today, the Anne Frank House, located just outside downtown Amsterdam. I've been there myself, and I'm always struck by the sombre silence of all of those who are walking around the building, going through into each different room, up into the lofts, back down, and into the exhibition space. It truly is a, a sobering and educational experience. And I suppose that sums up a bit more of what the Anne Frank House is, because it's not just a museum, is it? It's not just a museum. It's also considered to be a place of remembrance. And most of the visiting people, they pick that up. I think they notice that. So yes, it's a place that a lot of people are impressed by visiting just when you walk around and you are pondering and thinking over what, what just happened there in those years. Absolutely. And it's, it is a museum. It is a space where you can also learn a lot about this history, where talks can take place, where exhibitions can take place. But there's also research going on within the organization. And you're part of that, aren't you? Yes, that's right. For a long time, the mission of the Anne Frank House was mainly educational. And that is still an important part of it. But since I think about 15 years, 15 to 20 years, the idea has grown that it's good for us as an organization 
as an educational organization, also as a museum and also as, as a center of, of knowledge, as we are supposed to know things about the life of Anne Frank and, and the people around her. So the idea of forming our own body of knowledge uh, rather than rely on what other people do and think that's important. So the head of collections at that time got the idea to have a research department as well. And she managed to get that afloat. And that was about that time that I came in. I was working there in another capacity. But I am a researcher and I'm a historian. So I was taken on board to actually perform the research. Not on my own, but most of the past 15 years, I think, I did the main part of the research that's been done. But there are others as well. And what sort of things were you researching? What were you diving into? Well, that's mainly every aspect of the life, but what we consider 14, what we call protagonists, main figures, and that's Anne Frank and her family, and the other four people that have been hiding with them in that building. So there's another family and the dentist Fritz Pfeffer on his own. And then there's six people that tried to help them. They were in on the secret and they were trying to provide them with food and protection and help them. So that's 14 people. And... Well, we actually delve into their life stories. Where did they come from? What did they do before? What did they do after? And how? And that, that is the main question, I think. How did all these lives evolve and go on that made them all come together at one point in 1942 in that building and doing what they did there at the time? And then there's also history of the corporations, the companies that were running in the building where those people worked for. The Diary of Anne Frank itself, how did it develop? How did she write it? What does she write about? Because I suppose most people do know that the book that you buy in the bookstore is, in fact, is based on an immense pile of paper as a manuscript, various versions, also even some short stories and novels. This girl wanted to be a writer, but she also wanted to be a journalist. And in a lot of her approaches and the, the things that she write about herself, and about her experiences, uh, you see a journalistic, or at least a proto-journalistic approach at least. Um, so we also research into all that. When she mentions someone, the man around the corner, uh, the lady next door, who does she mean? Who is that? What is their role? What is their part in, in the complete picture of the life story? And the general idea, to cut it all short, is that insights, the knowledge that we get from that, offer us basically a window, an outlook, not on particular her life and her diary, but of the time that she was living in and what was happening to her, what was happening around her. Well, let's draw on your research to do exactly that, because like you rightly say, Anne Frank's story did not start in July 1942 when her family went into hiding or when she started writing her diary. Instead, it goes back much further than that, because the Frank family, although mostly associated with Amsterdam today, they were, of course, Germans. So take us through that history. What were the Frank family doing before they arrived in the Netherlands and how did they get there? Otto Frank, Anne Frank's father, he was from a family that had been living in Frankfurt am Main quite some time. And chiefly his father worked his way up from just a businessman, so to speak. And he became part of the affluent society. The family shifted into affluence, you can say. He was a banker and successful at that. But the family business was hit pretty hard by uh, the Great War. 
So investing in war bonds and well, German war bonds were the best of investment after 1918. So they came into a bit of trouble there. And 1929 hit them hard as well. So I'm going with a bit quickly, I think. But so, so around 1930, a lot of their affluence was dwindling. And of course, political developments in Germany at the time didn't make it much better. So gradually around the early 1930s, and expediated by 1933, the rise to power of Hitler and his National Socialist Party. All the, the sister and the brothers of Otto Frank, they all left the country and his mother too. So Otto Frank and his two brothers, they'd been fighting in the German army in uh, 14, 18 years. And his two brothers preferred to live in the capital cities of their former enemies, uh, Paris and London, rather than staying in Germany. That I think that says a few things about the atmosphere there at the time. Otto Frank saw the chance to come to Amsterdam of the always neutral Netherlands. He had a business opportunity there. So that was his choice. They moved to the Netherlands in 1933. At that time, for a businessman with means and a solid business plan, settling there wasn't really very hard. So uh, later in the 30s, uh, the Netherlands became very strict on, on immigration because a lot of refugees came from Austria later and from Germany. But they were lucky to be so early. So they lived in the Netherlands and in Amsterdam in a relatively well-to-do area. I think a friendly area with, with a lot of other Germans, but also Spanish, Hungarians, Dutch, all sorts of people from upper middle class, I guess. You see, that's really interesting to know because that means that, you know, this wasn't a last minute decision to flee Germany. It wasn't kind of putting the Frank family into a brand new situation where they knew absolutely nobody around. Instead, They'd been there almost a decade by the time that they had to go into hiding, which must have most definitely helped in trying to create a situation which, well, they could try and be kept secret, be kept safe for as long as possible. Yes, in general, you can say that people at that time, Jews, but there were other groups, they were forced to hide as well, but for other reasons, obviously. And if you want to go and hide, the best thing you can do and what the most people did, that is rely on pre-existing networks, on business associations, family relations, friendships. Also. And that's exactly what they did too. Otto Frank had been working in the Netherlands, as you say, over eight years. So he had his networks, he had a business, although he had to vacate that then after the occupation of the Netherlands, but he had loyal business associates that he worked with and loyal staff. So how did the situation in the Netherlands change over that almost decade period? And when did Otto Frank realize that the family would have to now go into hiding? Well, basically, you can say that people leaving, let's stick to Jewish Germans, they'd had to leave. It's obviously you have to leave Germany because there's much of a future there. There was over time that shifted. But in the early 1930s, for a lot of people, that was obvious and things only deteriorated afterwards. So what can you do? You can try and migrate. You can move to another country and find safety there. A lot of people thought, well, that other country better be on the other side of the ocean. But that was always difficult. The United States didn't have a refugee policy. They had an immigration policy. So if you want to go and immigrate, you've got to jump a lot of hurdles and you've got to make sure that you don't become a liability to public means over there. So it's not that easy. And I think most of the people that I come across in my research, German Jews living in the Netherlands, you can always find traces of documents or the, that they tried to go to the US. And some of them could, some of them couldn't. And Otto Frank and his family tried that as well. 
There is a document that he says, in 1938, I applied for immigration to the US, so that's 1938. That's a dramatic year because we don't know when in 1938. So early in 1938, you'd be on a waiting list with perhaps 20, 25,000 others, which is quite a lot. But later in the year, after the Anschluss of Austria in Nazi Germany, and in particular in November after the pogroms, what we call the Kristallnacht, the number of applicants for the US skyrocketed up to 350,000 or so, where the US would only allow a bit over 20,000 German-born immigrants every year. So you see a waiting list of 10 years. Immigration is not an option. Some people try to naturalize to another nationality, into another country. That didn't help in the end either. But for a lot of people in 1942, they've been trying quite a few things to get the safety. And then in 1942, in the summer, the choice was we go report ourselves in for a transit camp and then we got to be sent off to labor. That was the idea at the time, although that was the pretext. Or we go and hide. And it's good to consider that in the Netherlands in the summer of 1942, almost everyone thought this thing is going to be over in, what, six, eight, ten months, a year, perhaps, because the Americans will come, the British will come, and uh, all the Allies will come, and we're going to sort out these Germans. And that was a mistake. But that was the idea. Can we go hide and sit it out, or should we report in? So the plan here, then, was when it was realized that they would have to go into hiding, the thoughts were perhaps that they'd only have to be there for a matter of months until the Allied liberation. Yes, the general assumption in the Netherlands, you can read that in a lot of documents, in a lot of recollections of people at that time. Everyone thought 1942 was already pretty long and that this can't last much longer. So over-optimistic perhaps, or perhaps there was really the thought of that day, that's hard to judge, but in general people would think, well, if it's going to be for a year or so, we're going to do that, we can sit that out. But it went on for a lot, lot longer than that. And a number of helpers risked their lives to offer the Franks sanctuary. So one of the things that isn't often looked into as much is who these helpers were. Could you give us an idea of the people who did help provide the Franks sanctuary? Yes, four of them were uh, were office staff uh, of the companies. There were two companies in the building. One is that most people know that's Opecta, that's really a small product. It's a gelling agent for homemaking jam, uh, home cooking of jam. And so that for a couple of years, that was the cork on which Otto Frank and his family were afloat. But it wasn't really much of a business. So they needed more turnover, more turnouts uh, to keep themselves alive. And with a couple of business associates, he founded a business that traded in ingredients for the food industry. So that's spices from Asia, so colonial products, basically cinnamon, nutmeg, that sort of stuff, but also preservants and colorants and odorants and all sorts of surrogates. And that's where Mr. Van Pels from the other family in hiding comes in, because Otto Frank knew a few things about marketing and business. And Herman Van Pels, he knew the trade, he knew the product. In Germany, he had a business of his own for years in the same sort of product. So he was the expert in that respect. So four people from the office staff and one man in the warehouse. That's a bit of a dramatic thing as well. There was the father of one of the office workers was a warehouse man downstairs on the ground floor. And he was in on the secret too. He was the eyes and ears on the ground, basically. And he's also the one that built the famous bookcase that, that camouflaged the door into the hiding place. 
So he provided a lot of safety uh, guarding the, the front door and, and such, but he fell ill. He got seriously ill. He had stomach cancer and he had to leave his job. So there was another man down there. He wasn't in on the secret. And of course, they were not going to tell him because you don't know what kind of risk you run if you tell a total stranger. So that's when the sense of security sort of started to wane a little bit. But on the first floor, on the office floor, four office workers and the husband of one of them, the husband of Mipris, he was a civil servant. He worked in the civil service of the city and he also had a position as a commissioner, sort of a supervisor of the board of the business in the building. So you see this an office building with a company, a serious company running there where the management basically is hiding and is out of sight. No one knows they're there. And the staff that's trying to keep things afloat and running. And there's a mutual dependence there as well, because the people behind the bookcase would secretly do work, administrative work or packing goods and all sorts of things, to lower the expenses of the business. The business was the livelihood of the staff, and it was the life insurance for the people in hiding there. Because if the building was rented, if the business should fail, they had to vacate the building and they would leave their hiding place. So there's a mutual dependence between the corporations and the staff and the people hiding on the other side. So you mentioned there was four people in the office and then one person in the warehouse who sadly is taken ill and so reduces that capacity to try and help the Frank family. But you also mentioned that there is two families that are in hiding. So overall, how many people are being hidden in this office building? Altogether, there were eight. There's the Frank family, father and mother and two daughters. And then there's the business associate, the experts uh, Van Pels that I just mentioned, who knew about the trade, who knew about the goods, about the commodities. Uh, with his wife and son, so that's seven. They were there since July 42, and then in November they took in an eighth man. There was a dentist, Fritz Pfeffer. The tragedy with Fritz Pfeffer that is, is that um, he wanted to marry a non-Jewish woman in Germany, but he wasn't allowed because of the Nuremberg 1935 laws. And he moved with her to Amsterdam, and she always passed as his legal spouse in their social surroundings. So every, basically everyone thought, well, he's well off, he's in a mixed marriage, he's not in trouble as we are. So when the Frank family and Van Pels were hiding, they who knew him, were hiding in their annex, in their company building, then they heard that Fritz Pfeffer was in, in trouble too. And that's how they learned that his marriage wasn't an actually official marriage. So that is a tragic circumstance as well. But then they took him in, they saw fit to have an eight person there in the building. He could also, I suppose, help share expenses. I see. So there was a kind of humanitarian decision here to just try and help someone in need. But there was also a, a practical side to this as a means to try and help cover the cost of what is now a growing expense at a time that the war is also getting pretty tense, pretty severe, heightened in terms of the amount of violence that's being perpetrated across the continent and the amount of pressure that is being put on the Nazi forces. So it's even harder to get food, for example. And so all of this must combine together to make, as we move through 1953 and into 1954, a really, really difficult period. It also must have been incredibly, incredibly difficult on the mental state of those who were in hiding. Now, you mentioned about the adults who are, are helping with the business and cover some of the extra labor there. But what about the kids? What about people like Anne? What were they doing in their spare time? Learning and reading, that's the word, first words that come to mind. But just to be precise, also they did some of the work, just packing goods and uh, light administrative jobs. But 
mainly the idea was because they were optimistic and they thought there was going to come an end to that and they'd be back in school one day. So they kept up with their schoolwork. They tried to learn uh, history, languages, and do a lot of reading against getting bored, of course. Just hanging about and doing nothing and sit out day after day. That's mind-destroying. But so reading and keeping themselves occupied. And for the children, basically, keep up with schoolwork. So just trying to keep things as normal as possible until the world hopefully goes back mm. to the way it was. And also look to the future. Is that what Anne's diary is about to you? Is it also about looking to the future and trying to envisage a world where there is some hope? There's visions of hope, I think. But you have to consider also, as I mentioned earlier, her manuscripts, what she all wrote and scribbled, is a large pile of paper. It's not just one volume as a book. So when she starts out writing a diary, that's even a couple of weeks before she is hiding. Uh, she starts on her 13th birthday when she's still at home. And when she starts off as a just 13-year-old, you read the writing of a 13-year-old. She just knows it's going from this to that. And it's about things that she likes. And, uh, and you see her mature and you see a sort of intellectual development there as well. At a later stage in time, she's going to rework all her writing, all her notes into something that she wants to be a novel about her experiences in hiding. That's after uh, she hears from the Dutch government in London, the Secretary of Education and Sciences, I think he's called, in the exiled government in London from the Netherlands, on the radio, uh, the illegal radio, and he says to the people in the Netherlands, keep your notebooks, keep your calendars. If there's a sermon from a preacher or a priest, just keep that so we can document how daily life, how the experiences of the populations were during the occupations. And she hears that and she thinks, that's good. I'm going to do that. I'm going to write a novel about uh, what I've experienced. And so she starts writing that novel at a later stage in 1944, when she is a bit older and she has matured a bit and her writing skills are, are more developed. So that's when you see that, well, the talent, basically, the talent for writing and also for a journalistic approach comes to light. And it's from those chapters that's basically the diary as we know it from the bookstore is compiled. From Wondery, American History Tellers is a podcast that explores extraordinary events from the history of the United States and brings them to life. And in an all-new season, you'll learn about a tragedy that is often overlooked in American history, the Great Mississippi Flood. In the summer of 1926, the American Midwest saw rainfall like it had never seen before. And there was only one place for all that rain to go, the Mississippi River. In total, the flood submerged 27,000 square miles in seven states, destroying crops, paralyzing transportation, and washing away hundreds of farms and communities. By the time the flood waters receded, as many as 1,000 Americans were dead, and more than 600,000 were left homeless. Learn about the forgotten history of one of America's worst natural disasters, and how the racism, exploitation, and betrayal that followed it transformed the American landscape forever. Listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And of course, as we move through 1944 and up until that infamous date in history, August 4th, we see that Anne is still writing that diary. But do we know, and this is of course quite a contentious and controversial question, but do we know how they were discovered or why they were discovered, particularly on that date, on August 4th, 1944? There's been lots of reports recently around this traitor theory. Is there much accuracy in that? Or do we just not quite know exactly what happened here? Well, one of the research topics that I've been uh, over the years I told you about is in particular that what are the circumstances of that arrest? In my belief, uh, the 4th of August is just very arbitrary. But I brought out a research paper in 2016 because over time, the, the general idea, Otto Frank came back in the Netherlands in 1945 and he thought we were betrayed by someone and we're going to find out who. But there was an investigation. There was even a court case against the not knowing warehouse man. You know, this is the second warehouse man that we just discussed. He was acquitted because there was no evidence against him. In the 1960s, there was a new investigation after Wiesenthal had found the SS officer who was present at the arrest. And the general assumption is that someone made a treacherous phone call to the German authorities at the time. And in my investigative report from 2016, I have shown that that is just an assumption and there's no evidence for that. A lot of people think, well, that man said 20 years after the fact that there was a phone call made that morning. And so that must be true. However, the man himself says in his 1963 statement, one of the first things that he said is, if my memory serves me well, there was a phone call coming in that morning. So... He is not certain, but for a lot of people, they took that as evidence. And that led to, especially over the last 30 years, I think a wild goose chase of who made that phone call. And I think I've shown in my investigative report that that phone call is not certain at all in the first place. And that there's 
other avenues of thinking about scenarios that have led to uh, the visiting of a Dutch and German policemen on that day. For instance, you also pointed out that the supply of food was a large problem in this case. You know, people hiding, people are cut off from the civil society. Food supplies are overseen, uh, supervised and distributed by the authorities and strictly regulated. So if you're off the grid, if you don't have ties with the civic administration anymore, so you have to be fraudulent to get food. You have to be fraudulent to be supplied. So you make yourself vulnerable to all sorts of detection. And what this investigation of the former FBI man and his team has grossly neglected and willfully, I believe, overlooked is that earlier in 1944, already two people from the company in that building were arrested for fraudulent trading of food coupons. So German authorities had already sniffed on the building and sniffed on the company in there a couple of months prior to that raid. And there's no proof at this moment that I know that there is a connection between those two events. But I don't think it's very far-fetched to assume that. I think it's very light-headed of the Rosemary Sullivan book to just plainly ignore that. And I think that's because they want to point out the culprit in a scenario where there's no culprit. But they were merely accidentally caught up in the police investigation, totally unrelated to their presence. Just don't serve that purpose. So is it more practical than that? And of course, those who want to find a culprit don't want to deal in the more basic and I suppose boring practicalities of these things. But could we go as far to say it. it was it was almost inevitable in this case? Because when you are trying to feed so many people, and as we said, as the screws are being tightened on all levels of society, as rationing is getting harder, as it becomes more difficult for people to live with inside the system, let alone outside it, there would have been That's something it. that flashed up, something that would have given them away. That's exactly it. And uh, so my thesis is, although not to be proven until yet, that the company, Gisenko, was under scrutiny from the authorities because their salesmen had been proven to be fraudulent. One of them is even convicted for that in 1944. So it's not far-fetched. There was a detective unit, a nationwide working detective unit that specialized in this sort of fraud. And they've been searching places all over the country, and it's more than once that they came across uh, Jews hiding there as well. They weren't looking for them. They were looking for people that were slaughtering livestock illegally, people that were trading in food coupons, people that were fraudulent with food rations. So I guess there's a good chance that that has happened. And not a lot of people in the Netherlands realizes that that was a big danger for hidden Jews as well. The general idea is for you hide somewhere in an attic or in the basement or in the back room and you hope that the neighbors won't give you away. But there's a lot of more things that are jeopardizing your secret presence anywhere. Well, I suppose that this is all but one side of the story, because no matter how they were discovered, it sets into action a series of tragic events from that August date in '44. So tell us what happened to the Frank family. Where were they taken upon being discovered? Yes, it's a good point that you make. Before the outcome, it doesn't matter whether they're betrayed or found by coincidence. Uh, the outcome is still the same. So what happened to them is that they were taken to a German bureau where they were briefly interrogated and then brought to a remand prison right in the middle of Amsterdam. There they were locked up with other Jews that were arrested recently. 
So that's what they did at the time. They had a, sort of a holding facility there and they would hold the people in there. And once they had a number of 70 or 80 or so, they would take them to the transit camp Westerbork in the north northeast of the country. So there was a concentration camp or a transit camp, as it was called, where, where the Jewish population of the Netherlands was brought over time bit by bit and from where the deportation trains left. And so they arrived there on August 8, 1944, four days after being arrested. And on September 3, just a couple of weeks later, they were taking in a train, the proverbial cattle cars, to Auschwitz. They were on the last train to leave the Netherlands for Auschwitz. The last train to leave the Netherlands for Auschwitz. Now, that is a powerful sentence. What happened to all of those who were found after that train had left? They were brought to Westerbork as well, and there were people left behind in Westerbork as well. And the next day, on September 4, there was also a train leaving, but that didn't go to Auschwitz, but to Theresienstadt in what now is Czechia, the Czech Republic. And that wasn't exactly a walk in the park, but it was different from Auschwitz. So there were a lot of people left behind in Westerbork, and it was liberated by, I think, the Canadians or the Poles in April 1945. So they found, I think, about eight or 900 people still alive there. So we know that the Frank family are taken off to Auschwitz. Do we know much about their time there, what life was like for Otto, for Anne, and for the rest of the family? Well, Otto Frank is the only one who is survived, who lived to tell the tale, but we do know a few things about them. There was other people that have survived Auschwitz, have seen them there as well, I'd have met them there as well, so they can tell quite a few things about that. Well, at first, at the rifle at Birkenau, at the Rampe, so to speak, that's a, a well-known picture with a watchtower and the trains coming down. And the first thing that happens is that men and women are separated. So Otto Frank was separated from his wife and daughters. Uh, Hermann van Pels was, and his son were separated from their uh, wife and mother. And Fritz Pfeffer, being on his own from this little group, was with the other men, of course. So the women remained in uh, Birkenau and the men were marched after being tattooed and shaven and all that, uh, marched to what's called the Stammlager, Auschwitz I. And they were set to work. They had to dig gravel from a river and make roads, sort of that, that hard labor. Hermann van Pels was the first one, I think, to die. So he injured his hand during work and he asked to be relieved for work for some days and he was granted that relief. But then the risk that you run then is that you're just in the barracks being useless and every couple of weeks all those useless people were round up and murdered. And we don't know exactly how and when, but somewhere early October he must have died and he's probably gassed with a lot of other people. His son survived until January when the death marches started from Auschwitz. So everyone who could walk uh, was forced to walk and he was taken about 50 kilometers or so and put on a train and ended up in Mauthausen in Austria. And that's where he died, totally exhausted and malnourished. Around the day of the liberation, actually, in May 1945, the Americans were already on the threshold, but not too late for him. Fritz Pfeffer was a dentist and he left Auschwitz with a bit of a mystery still, but with a group of other medical professionals at least 20 or so. We don't know for what purpose, but he ended up in uh, the Neuenkammer camp near Hamburg. And that's where he died of uh, anthrocolitis in December 1944 already. And then the women in Birkenau, Edith Frank died on early January 1945. There's a witness, a friend that she made there that witnessed that and told that 
toward the front later on, she did survive. And in November 44, already she was separated from her daughters because at that point, the Nazis started to move large numbers of women, Dutch and French mainly, and some Hungarians, from Auschwitz back into Germany proper to a camp where they could just erolung is the German word, just uh, get fixed up a little bit because they were still fit enough to work in the war industry. All the German men were fighting on the front at that time and the factory should still be running because the war effort was tremendous. So these women were to put in, to work in all those factories and Edith Frank was not fit enough to go with them. So the girls were separated from her. She stayed behind in Auschwitz and she withered away, I guess, there. She was ill and malnourished as well and died. So then Mrs. Van Pels and the girls, Anne and Margot, they were moved to Bergen-Belsen. There was the camp where they should have been patched up a little bit and then distributed over other parts of Germany to set the work. But the front lines kept shifting and shifting and one railway line after another was cut off. And so that whole idea didn't work out that very well in the end. And that's why Bergen-Belsen was in, by early 1945, sort of a warehouse overcrowded with 10,000s of people who had no food, no health care and hanging about to die, basically, lots of them. And only Mrs. Van Pels, uh, to be complete, she was put on a train and put to work in a little factory near Dessau. And after a couple of weeks, she and a lot of other women were moved further towards the St. Theresienstadt in the now Czech Republic again. And she died on the way, there's people, have been people testimonying that. She died on that train and they left her behind by the tracks during one of the stops. And Anna and Margot, as we well know, somewhere in February, uh, contracted typhoid fever and uh, transmitted by vice in clothing, in unwashed clothing. And thousands of thousands of people in Bergen-Belsen died of that cause, and they did too. Did Otto Frank, in the end, he was in the sick bay in, uh, in Auschwitz, where he luckily survived being in the sick bay. It was a bit of a dead sentence, really, but a couple of hundred that did survive that, and they were liberated by the Russians, by the Soviet army, I should say. They were Russians, Ukrainians, and all sorts of Soviet soldiers in that army, and they liberated the camp, and that was how he was saved. And you mentioned Bergen-Belsen, of course, which was liberated by the British on the 15th yes. of April, 45. Yes. And, and like you say, I mean, the scenes there, thousands of bodies lay unburied around the camp. What, 60, 70,000 people starving, mortally ill, packed together without food, water, basic sanitation, suffering from various different types of diseases, typhus, dysentery. I mean, truly a um, terrible, terrible place to be and highlights the stark reality of the end of the war and of the Holocaust. And you mentioned that Otto is the only one to survive. How did it come to be that we're able to talk about this today, that we're able to hear about the Frank story, that we're able to read Anne's diary? Yes, well, the diary was left behind at the arrest and was scattered all over the floor, all that paper. That, that is a well-known story that the German officer present at the scene, he needed something to put the valuables that he confiscated in. And Otto Frank kept his daughter's papers in his briefcase during the night. So he scattered around, around the floor to put the valuables in. And the helpers, the office staff, the women that were not arrested that day, 
they picked up all those papers in the days after and they kept it to give it back to Anna when she would come back. Well, she didn't, but then Otto did. And when it was clear that uh, Otto was the only one and that all the others had died, uh, they handed over all the paperwork to him. So Otto Frank took that and it took him a while before he could set himself to actually reading it, a couple of months actually, till the end of 1945. And when he started reading it and he somehow found out that she parts of that book she had intended for publication. There was a dream. She wanted to be a writer and a journalist and she wanted to publish that book. So that gave him the thought, I think. And I think it's fair to say that it was for him the sense of purpose again. So his family gone, his social circle gone, his daughters, his wife, his business down on the ground and he had to rebuild. He sort of reinvent himself and rebuild his whole life. And having that book and the ideals that, well, he says, I want to spread my daughter's ideals. I don't know exactly, to be honest, what those ideals were. But there is something about hope and about reconciliation and we should be good and people should be good for each other and we should build a better world as a general idea. I think that's the ideals that he mentioned. And he worked for that. So he found a new purpose in life in the idea of reconciliation. Bring back the youth of all corners of the world and bring them together and let them talk and let them meet each other, let them get to know each other so we can avoid this sort of calamities and disasters in the future. I think when you look at the world today, that wasn't very successful, but still the idea is good. And uh, after the, the, the diary became a success, in particular in the United States, so it, well, in the Netherlands it was quite a success as well. The first, it was first printed in June 1945, and the second print was already in December. So there, were, there, were, there was a lot of public interest, I think, for the book. But it really took wings in the United States, and then there was a stage play in the U.S., and there was a film made by uh, George Stevens in the U.S. So there was international acclaim and international interest as well. And when the interest for his daughter's diary grew internationally, he had the idea also of maintaining the building where it had all happened. It was a derelict building. It was always collapsing. So he took initiatives to preserve that building and to do it up again and make that, all those meetings, that's where the youth from the world could meet, that should be in that place, in his opinion. And that's what he worked for. And that's what he actually realized as well in the 1960s when the Anna Frank House was just open for the public. It was every year there was also a youth center connected to it. And every year from 1960, 61, 62, to up until the 70s or so, there were annual youth conferences, just students coming from all over the world and discussing all sorts of things, apartheid in South Africa, the civil rights movement in the US, the Vietnam War, um, all sorts of topics that people discuss. They want to make the world a better place. So I think that's why we can still visit that today. And that's exactly where Anne's message lives on, that push for hope and, and reconciliation around the world. Although, as we hear on, on this podcast all too often, it's very, very difficult to achieve in reality, it seems, but we need those spaces, just like the Anne Frank House, where those discussions can take place. Gertrude, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast today. Please tell us about where people can read more of your work and how they can engage in the work of the Anne Frank House. The best way to go, I think, is go to the website annefrank.org. You can all find all sorts of information of the activities of the Anne Frank House. And there's also uh, in there you can find, uh, you can look for the research. 
various research report that I wrote or, or that some of my colleagues wrote. Um, you can find an investigative report about the arrest. You can find an article that I co-authored with an American colleague about the immigration attempts into the US. You can find all sorts of information there and also things you can possibly do yourself. Well, Gershon, thank you so much for your time today and for your continued research on this topic. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And I hope to be back. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.